Praise God. It's a wonderful morning. So shall we just pray together before we begin this morning? Thank you, Lord. Father, I do thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity of being able to look again at the Word of God. We thank you for what your Word means to us. Father, it's the lamp unto our feet. We know the way that we're going because your Word illuminates our path so clearly. Father, I pray, Father, that through all of these studies in this Word of God series, we should become proud of our belief concerning your Word, that it has been written by God, that it's infallible, it's inerrant, and it is the only authority as far as our lives are concerned. Father, I pray indeed, Lord, that through the things I shared in the last Bible studies, that people might be saved, Lord, that they might come to see that there is a God who reigns in history and who reigns in the universe, and that, Father, this God has revealed himself in his word. Father, I would ask in Jesus' name, that, Father, we should see more people set free, Father, from the bondage of Mormonism and the bondage of the Jehovah's Witness. Father, for any people who are in doubt and in darkness and confused, that, Father, the Word of God should come and set them free. I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that in some measure, the study even this morning and the study this evening may indeed set the captives free. Father, give us the information and Father, we ask you then to give us the courage to go and stand for the truth in our society. Father, this morning I'm asking for clarity. I'm asking that you will anoint my mouth, that the word of God may go forth from it. And that, Father, you will anoint the ears that hear. Come and speak to us, Lord, that we might hear what the Spirit has to say, even to us this morning. Oh, thank you for your grace and your love. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've decided that in the basic series, it's time we had a good look at the Word of God. And we come today to the fourth in the basic series, which is on the Word of God. Do you remember in the first talk in this series, I actually talked about five questions that we have. If we are to believe that the Bible is the Word of God, there are five problems that we've got to answer. And so far I've answered three of them and we have two left. And in today's study I'm speaking about one of them. This evening I'm speaking about the last. Do you remember what those five questions were? First of all, if the Bible really is the Word of God, is there any objective evidence that it is? And do you remember that in the second Bible study of this series, we saw some fascinating details from science, scientific statements that the Bible makes that couldn't have been made by the people who actually penned those statements. Statements that were 4,000 or 3,000 years ahead of their time and statements that could only have been made by the Creator who knew everything anyway. And in that fascinating study, we saw that indeed there was objective evidence to show that this Bible was not the work of a fruitful imagination, but rather the work of the God who was the creator of the whole universe. And then I went on to answer the second question, which was this. If this is the Word of God, how did God give the information to the people who wrote the Bible, who actually put it down, put pen to paper? How did he do it? And we had a look at the doctrine of inspiration, if you remember, right? Now, 
those of us who are Bible teachers today know the doctrine of perspiration, but this is the doctrine of inspiration, that the Bible is God-breathed, that God didn't just dictate it to them, he actually supervised their writing so that their character comes out, but this it really is the Word of God. And the third question then, which I answered in the Bible study last time, was this. Look, this Bible is a very old book. How do we know that the text of the Bible that we have in our hand today is the same as the text that they had 2,000 years ago, or 3,000 years ago, or 4,000 years ago? How do we know? And by the way, don't think that writing developed late. It's now shown that Abraham probably wrote quite a bit of the Bible out. And we've actually found tablets with writing on, dating from about Abraham's time and even before that time. And do you remember that in the Bible study last time, we went on this marvellous excursion, having a look at some wonderful men of God who'd loved the Bible and who had sold themselves to God so that they devoted their whole life to finding out the original text of this Bible. And that work still goes on today. All right? And occasionally, by the way, if uh, you remember, just pray, will you? Right? It might just come to your mind, perhaps once a month. Lord, please give some old texts of the Bible into the hands of Bible-believing Christians. Please, Lord. Lord, show us where the old texts are. Show us, Lord. Because they're hidden away somewhere. And perhaps we'll go right back you know, to the original manuscripts. Well, that's what I'm actually believing. But we're very near there anyway, as we saw last time. We have only two questions left to answer. One we're dealing with this morning, and it's this. Who decided that these books in this book here, the 66 books that are contained within the Bible, who decided they were the Word of God and not some other books? Who decided that certain books were in and certain books were out? because that's a very important question. And then, in the next study, we'll be talking about apparent contradictions in the Bible, and I'll be going through about 18 or so apparent contradictions in the Bible, and showing how they're not contradictions at all, but that they show us something glorious about God. So, for this morning, we are on this question, who decided that the 66 books that we find in the Bible were the inspired Word of God. And here I have to introduce you to a word that unfortunately is not well known among Christians today, and it's the word canon. Now we all know the word spelt C-A-N-N-O-N, right? That's a big gun that fires off uh, shots from time to time, all right? And in Hong Kong at noon, they let off the noonday canon, and bang it goes. That's not the canon that I'm speaking about this morning. The canon I'm speaking about is spelt differently. It's spelt C-A-N-O-N. So it hasn't got a double N in the middle. Canon. And it's rather an interesting word that has been used about the Bible for about 1,700 years or 1,800 years now. All right? Now, most Christians today know that the Bible is like a two-edged sword, right? That it's a very powerful weapon. But unfortunately, not too many have heard of the word canon. But very often the Bible is called the canon of Scripture, C-A-N-O-N. And you might be interested to know that the word canon is actually a Greek word meaning a reed or a rod. Now this is odd, isn't it? You might say, well, why on earth is it called the reed or rod of Scripture? The important thing to know is that the surveyors of the ancient world used to use a rod to measure with. 
And the basic instrument of a surveyor in the ancient world was this reed. This reed was used to actually measure out the size of the building you were going to draw. It was used to make sure the angles were right. It was used to make sure the height of the building was right. And it was used to make sure that the building was going up straight and not at an angle. You see? And so the word canon, as used by the Greeks, meant this. It was the ruler or the authority. That's what the word means. The ruler or authority. After all, it was the surveyor who had the authority over the building. And if his reed showed you built it wrong, you'd built it wrong. If his reed showed that you built it two cubits too small, you'd built it two cubits too small. He was the one with the authority. And by the word canon, we mean this, that this is the scripture, but it is the authority for the church, for the faith, and for our individual lives. That's what we mean when we say the canon of scripture. Now, this is very important. God has decided that the books contained in the Bible will be canonical. In other words, they will be the authority for the society in which we live. That's what he's decided. He's given us this book so that in every generation, the truth about him might be freely available to whoever wants to look into it. And let me tell you this, many people have come and said, the Bible's finished. Many, many philosophers, humanist philosophers, have said the Bible won't last another hundred years. And a hundred years later, they were in their tombs, right? And forgotten, and most people say, who's he? The Bible has gone marching on. Do you know, for 2,000 years at least, the Bible has been in our world and in our society. And let me tell you, as long as the earth exists, the Bible is going to be there. Do you know, it's still the bestseller today. This society is without excuse. If you have a Bible on your shelf and it's dusty, I'm afraid you still have no excuse. It was there and freely available. You chose not to find out about God. And this book gives us a revelation concerning the things of God. This is the mind of Christ. This is the mind of God. If you want to know whether God's pleased about something, you look it up in the handbook. Right? And that's what this is. You look it up. No, he doesn't like it. Then you know it's wrong. You see, now that's why God's given us this particular book. And by the way, you in your individual Christian life, you must use this as you are built up in your faith. This makes sure that you are being built true and straight. This is the authority that God has given to us. The question, however, is, but hold on, who decided that this was the revealed Word of God? You see, there were many other books written about the time, that the Bible was written, who decided they weren't to be in the canon of Scripture. And so we have to have a good look at this. If you ask some Christians today, they'll say, oh, well, it was the church that decided. And they will say, as we'll see later on, that there were certain church councils held, say, 300 years after the time of Jesus. And these church councils, they say, decided which books were to be in the Bible. Now, be very, very, very careful when you're talking like that. Listen, if you are saying that a group of churchmen came along and they decided which books were in this Bible and which were not in this Bible, what you're saying is that the church has higher authority than the Bible. And I have to tell you this, today there are certain denominations who believe that there isn't one authority, but there are two authorities. Do you know that? 
Now, I, as a fundamentalist, believe there's only one authority, and that's the Bible. But some Christians around believe there are two authorities. The Bible is one, but the church is another authority. And they say, well, in effect, they're equal in their authority. What this means is that the church can give teaching, and if the church thinks that's the teaching, then no matter what the Bible says, that's the teaching. Do you see? And there are people around who believe that. And you know their belief is based on the fact that they think it was the church that decided which books should be in the Bible. And what they say is, well, back there, you see, the church had authority over the Bible. And so it goes on. This, obviously, is some of the more orthodox churches, the Roman Catholics, the Anglicans. Uh, many of the Anglicans believe that. But it's not just those. Do you know there are fellowship groups today? who actually, although they wouldn't say they believe it, are putting out the same viewpoint. Do you know what happens in some so-called fellowship groups today? You go along and you have a commitment class, right? And you go through the basics, and there's nothing wrong in learning the basics of the faith. Then at the end of the day, you have to sign a little leaflet that says, I submit to the elders and their teaching." Now, believe it or not, that's true. By the way, in our fellowship, you will never, ever, ever be asked to sign a piece of paper like that. Because what that's actually saying is this. First of all, I sign this form that says that I will submit to those elders, but when they add the words, and their teaching, what you're saying is that they have authority to tell you what the Bible says. Now, I'll tell you something. The Holy Spirit has the authority to tell you what the Bible says. And you'll notice in my own Bible teaching, I don't say to you, oh, don't listen to this or don't listen to that. What I say to you is, look, listen to the Word of God, go away and pray about it, and let the Holy Spirit show you that it's true. Listen to any tapes you want. Listen to any other teaching that you want, and the Holy Spirit will show you what's correct. That's the way it's got to be. And so, you see, these people say that there are two authorities. There's the church and there's the Word of God. I reject that totally, and I'll tell you this, as a Bible teacher, I do not put myself up as an authority above the Word of God. The Word of God is my authority, and by the way, if you ever hear me say things that contradict the Word of God, drop me like hot cakes. Right? That's a warning. Don't stick with me. If it's wrong, it's wrong. I'm talking about serious things, right? If it's wrong, it's wrong. Don't do it. The Word of God is the authority, and that's why I, as an elder, function under the authority of the Word of God and not equal to it or above it. So, let's just watch this. Now, in fact, is it true that the church councils decided which books were in Scripture? Oh, no, it isn't true. Of course it's not true. People had known which were the inspired books for centuries. Everyone knew that the Old Testament books were inspired. Everyone knew Paul's letters were inspired. No, what happened was this, that certain evil men started coming along and started writing heresy. And after a while, some of the flock were being taken in. So the church said, well, it's time that we actually spelled it out which books are inspired. They didn't decide which books were inspired. The books themselves already showed they were inspired. All the church did was to write a list of the books that everyone knew was inspired. That's all. I mean, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, it was the inspiration of Scripture that came first, and the church recognized that these were inspired. It wasn't a matter that the church decided, these are the inspired books. If you don't like it, you must submit. It wasn't that at all. They recognized certain things that were in the books that everyone knew 
were inspired anyway. And they wrote down that these particular books have been recognized for generations as inspired. Now, if that's not quite clear, by the end of this Bible study, it really will be clear. Let me just show you uh, five of the rules that they noticed locked the canon of Scripture. And I put this under the heading of the Old Testament. Let me just point these out. These have been written in many different ways. These are the rules of the canon, of canonicity. And the church fathers came along and they knew which books people felt were inspired and they simply noticed certain things about them. For example, they looked, first of all, for a prophetic author. Let's take the Old Testament. Was a well-known prophet associated with this book and the author of the book and had he always been associated with it? If he was, it's likely that that would be a sign that that book was inspired. All right, so they looked for prophetic authorship. Number two, they looked for consistency. What do I mean by consistency? They looked at the doctrine contained in the books and they said, does this agree with the doctrine that we know is right? And if it doesn't, that's not inspired. But you see, they knew what the doctrine was already. And so they looked at it and they said, this is in order. Three, did it have the authority of God in it? In the Old Testament, constantly, it keeps saying, thus saith the Lord, this is God's word, I warn you, God has said. Now that's a book that claims authority. Do you see? Do these books claim authority? Number four, were they powerful as you read them? In other words, here you are, you've got the Holy Spirit inside. As you read this book, do you feel God's power coming out of the book? Do you or don't you? That was another thing that they actually looked for. And last of all, and look how important this is, number five, was the book already accepted as inspired? Now, if a book came along that no one had heard of, the church couldn't say, oh, well, we think this is inspired and you're going to have to submit to that. That would break rule number five. No, what they always said was, look, for 200 years people have taken this as the inspired word of God. They know it's inspired. So that's a major sign that it is inspired. You see, the church didn't dictate that these books were inspired. God had already shown they were inspired, and the church came along and formalized the thing. You see? Incidentally, I have two lovely quotes. I've actually... Um, written these quotes out. Can I um, give you these two quotes? People writing about this whole problem. One is a quote from James Parker, who's quite a well-known theologian. He says this, The church no more gave us the canon of Scripture than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. <laughs> now, that's a very good analogy, this. I mean, which came first, Sir Isaac Newton or the law of gravity? Was gravity around before Sir Isaac Newton came? Well, of course it was. Otherwise, people have been floating away. All Sir Isaac Newton did was this. He knew that gravity was there, and he defined gravity. He measured gravity. He told people that gravity was this, that a, a ball would fall to the earth at such a rate of acceleration, and so on. Do you see? And what he's saying is, look, the church no more gave us the canon of Scripture than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the law of gravity. Gravity was already there, and Scripture was already there. All the church did was define it. It's a good quote, that. You see? He says, God gave us gravity by his work of creation, and similarly, he gave us the canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. That's a lovely quotation. However, there's a much better one, which is from uh, Dr. William Hendrickson. And he's written some of these New Testament commentaries, you know, which are very good, 
and contain a lot of information. He says this, Though the history of the recognition, review, and ratification of the canon was somewhat complicated, and it was, what should be emphasized is that not because the church upon a certain date long ago made an official decision do these books constitute the inspired Bible. On the contrary, the 66 books by their content immediately attest themselves to the heart of spirit-indwelt men as being the living oracles of God. It's the scriptures that came first, not the other way around. Do you see? And so all the church did was bow to the authority of the scriptures. Now this is very important. The church simply let the scriptures speak for themselves. And so they said, we know that these books have been inspired by God and they've been the recognized authority long before we ever met. So that's where we get to. But the canon of Scripture means that it is the authority for our life and for our faith. All right, let's have a look then, as we've got the heading here, Old Testament, can we have a look at the books that make up the Old Testament canon? And when we come on to the Apocrypha in just a minute, you'll see how the Apocrypha breaks all five of these rules. And that's why the Apocrypha is not part of the canon of Scripture. So this will become very clear, I hope. Let's uh, actually have a look at the Old Testament canon. And I should warn you that the Jews actually arranged their canon in a slightly different way to ours. The Jews divided the Old Testament into three main sections. Let's go through these sections and have a look at it. All right? The Old Testament canon, and here are the three sections. Now, this is one of the sections that you would have guessed, even if you didn't know this. The first section that the Old Testament is divided into is called the Law or the Torah. By the way, sin in the Hebrew means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. You fire off an arrow and you miss the bullseye. The word Torah means something that helps you hit the bullseye. It's a viewfinder, right? And we're missing the mark. Well, how do we know how to get back onto the mark? Well, the law of God tells us what the mark is. So that helps us. So the law. And the law always began with Genesis. Genesis is the first book, even of the Hebrew Bible. All right? So Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And by the way, in Sweden and countries like that, they don't call them by these names. They have the first book of Moses, the second book of Moses, the third book of Moses, the fourth book of Moses, and the fifth book of Moses. Well, all right, I prefer these names, I must say. All right, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that was the first section of the law. And by the way, whenever Jesus says the law, he's talking about these first five books, or any part of them. The second group that we come to are the prophets, or as it is in the Hebrew, the Neveim, N-E-B for Bertie, H-I-I-M, the Neveim, a Beth is pronounced as a V, the Neveim, there. And these were divided into two groups. You had the former prophets, Joshua, which, of course, is the history of the division of the land. Judges, which is the first history book ever written, funnily enough. It's an analysis of history and a very important one. Samuel and Kings. Now, in our Bibles, we divide Samuel into two halves, don't we? One Samuel, two Samuel, one Kings, two Kings. 
in uh, the original canon of the Old Testament, it wasn't divided. The two books were put together. So you just got Samuel and kings together. And these were called prophets because these were written by prophets. You see, Joshua, Samuel wrote the book of Judges, probably. Samuel wrote much of 1 Samuel, and his students would have written the rest and kings. Do you see? And so they are called the former prophets. Then you get the latter prophets. The latter prophets. And these are well-known names again. You've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve, which we call the minor prophets. By the way, they're called minor prophets, not because their message is minor. Their message is major. They're called minor because they're shorter than the others. That's all. Do you spot, by the way, there's one missing in this list? Daniel is not included among the prophets. Now, that's rather interesting, and we'll come on to that in just a moment. There's a reason why he's not included among the prophets. So there's the second section. The first section is the law. The second section is the prophets. Then we come on to the third section, and this is called the writings or the kethuvayim, right? Kethuvayim, K-E-T-H-U-B for Bertie again. H-I-I-M, the kethuvayim. There it is. The writings. And these were the books that were included in them. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Daniel. Isn't that interesting? I'll tell you why in a minute. Ezra, Nehemiah, and then their Old Testament canon ended with Chronicles. Chronicles was the last book of the Old Testament in the Old Testament canon. So the Bible in those days went from Genesis to Chronicles. There it is. Now, why are these put in? Well, the writings are wisdom books. They tell you how to live a life according to the law of God. And when they looked at Daniel, even though he was a prophet, what they felt was the main message from Daniel was this. It told you how to be a man of God in adversity. It told you how to live. Therefore, it shouldn't go in the prophets. It should go in the writings. You see? And these are the so-called wisdom books. Here they are. Ruth is an important one. You see, up to the time of Ruth, you've had the law, you've had Joshua and Judges, then you get this little book of Ruth. Now, why? Well, the law told you what God's standards were, but Ruth tells you how it was applied to an ordinary Moabitess living in the land. Because a Moabitess wasn't allowed in the congregation of Israel up to ten generations. But Ruth proves that if they were born again, they could come straight in. It's lovely. Do you see? So Ruth tells us the practical outworkings of the law. So it should go in the writings. Now, all of these books were accepted as the authority. There was just a question about two of the books. And all this meant was that most people accepted two of these books as inspired, but a few people scratched their heads and said, I don't see how they can be. And so it was the church who had to sit down and think about these books. And they let the books speak. Which were the two books which were questioned? Well, it's the book of Esther... That was questioned. And the book of Ecclesiastes was questioned. They had problems over these books. Why did they have problems over Esther? Well, you see, Esther doesn't contain anywhere the name of God. 
So they looked at it and they thought, well, I don't know, this is supposed to be an inspired book, but it doesn't contain the name of God anywhere. Can this be an inspired book? And they looked at all the other uh, rules and they found that Esther agreed with them. And Esther had always been accepted as canonical. So they said, well, it is. That's right. And there was a discussion about this and the conclusion was, oh, look, everyone has always accepted Esther as inspired. So in it goes. Ecclesiastes, no wonder it gave them a problem. Does the book of Ecclesiastes give you a problem? It ought to. By the way, I've known some preachers who've actually taken a, a verse, a text out of Ecclesiastes, and they preach for the whole hour out of Ecclesiastes, and it's been rubbish from beginning to end. Why is Ecclesiastes such a difficult book? Well, you see, Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon at the end of his life, and he'd lived a life totally out of fellowship with God. And what he does in the book of Ecclesiastes, he reviews all the worldly thinking that went through his head. And at the end of it, he keeps coming to this conclusion. But all this thinking's vanity. It's vexation of spirit. It's rubbish. And he comes to the conclusion, there's only one thing that makes sense. You've got to serve thy creator in the days of thy youth. Isn't that wonderful, you see? But his review of all his false thinking Listen, you can't quote that as the basis of your faith. That should be a warning in case those views are in your head. I promise I'll be doing a verse-by-verse -verse study of Ecclesiastes, and we'll sort some of this out. Beware the man who preaches every week from Ecclesiastes. You watch it, right? Very difficult book. So they thought, well, look, it's so full of rubbish, this book, human viewpoint. How can it be in the inspired Word of God? Well, it's in there to show us what the world is thinking. Can I repeat one thing that I've said in other tapes, and I want to say it again? Not every word in the Bible is true. Oh, now that's it. Hold on a minute. Don't walk out yet. Hold on. <laughs> Not every word in the Bible is true. Do you know in the Bible there are quotations from Satan? What Satan says isn't true, but it is true. He said it. Right? Do you understand what I mean? And so get it right. And there are things written in this Bible that were thought by evil, ungodly men. I mean, the thoughts of the king of Assyria are put in here. They weren't right thoughts, but he did think them. And they're in here because God wants us to know what he thought. Now, this is very, very important indeed. Incidentally, can I find this verse? I've said this before. Can we just quickly turn to Genesis and chapter 3? Forgive me if you've heard this before. Here is the word of the serpent. Verse 4 and verse 5. Look. The serpent who was tempting... I've put this in, by the way. This wasn't on our official list, but I'm going to add this. Verse 4 and verse 5. And here is the woman being tempted. Now look. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. Contradicting God. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Is that right? No, it's not. But it's what the devil said. And by the way, in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, in their dining hall, they wanted a quotation from the Bible on the wall. And one chap said, oh, I've got the perfect thing. The perfect quotation. He said, let me find it. And he found it. And it said, and your eyes shall be opened, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And if you go in the dining hall today of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, that is written on the wall with the Bible reference directly under it. And it's the words of the devil written on the wall. It's the devil's thinking. It's utterly false what's said. 
So that's what I meant. Not every word that's in the Bible is true, because the devil's words are recorded as well. And Ecclesiastes contains a lot of human viewpoint. So you watch it. So there was the discussion. Well, there's the Old Testament canon, and that's the beginning and the end of it. There are no other books that go in the Old Testament. None at all. No other books were recognized as going in there. Now, Jesus actually, in two interesting passages, confirms that this is the order of the books. Let's go in our Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24 and verse 44. And here is the resurrected Christ speaking. Luke 24 and verse 44. And look what he said. He ate some uh, broiled fish and uh, honeycomb. Doesn't sound terribly appetizing to me. Praise God he was in his resurrection body. And he took it and did eat before them. Now verse 44, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in, now notice these three divisions, in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. Now the Psalms are in the writings. There we are. That's the third category, in the Psalms. The Psalms came first of the writings, and sometimes the whole lot were put under the heading of the Psalms. And there it is. And so he confirms these three sections to the law. It's also confirmed earlier on in Luke and chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, verse 49, 50 and 51. And this is confirmed in a very interesting way. Luke 11 49, therefore also, said the wisdom of God, I will send some, them prophets and apostles, and some of them shall they slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zechariah. Now who's this? Well, Abel was the first person to be murdered, found in Genesis chapter 4. And Zechariah here is the Zechariah who is murdered in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. So in other words, beginning with Abel in Genesis, ending with the chap who died in Chronicles, all of the people who died in between, you will be held responsible for. Isn't that an amazing statement? So there you've got it from Genesis to Chronicles. It is so. Okay. Um, there is, however, a group of books which some people think should be in the Old Testament canon, but which should not be in the Old Testament canon. And these are the so-called books of the Apocrypha. Now, I've got a little copy of the Apocrypha here. I keep it in a separate volume, right? I don't add it to this thing. These books are rather interesting little books. I've got a list of the books that are contained in the Apocrypha here. By the way, the, the word Apocrypha, A-P-O-C-R-Y-P-H-A, actually means concealed or hidden. All these books were written after the Old Testament was completed. And have a look at some of the names. Here we are, 1 and 2 Esdras. Fascinating name, sounds like a, an orange drink to me. 1 and 2 Esdras, Tobit, Judith. The rest of Esther. It's nice. In other words, Esther wasn't finished, and I want to add a bit more. The rest of Esther. The wisdom of Solomon. I think Ecclesiastes is the wisdom of Solomon myself. The wisdom of Solomon. This one, Ecclesiasticus. 
not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus. Baruch. This was the chap who wrote much of the writings, you know, of, of the prophets. And uh, here he decided to write his own book. So that's pretty good, right? And rather like my typists, deciding they're going to write a book. So there's Baruch. The Song of the Three Children. This is what they said, apparently, when they were in the fiery furnace, you see, in Daniel's day, right? The Song of the Three Children, the history of Susanna. Very nice. Bell and the Dragon. The Prayer of Manasseh and One and Two Maccabees. Now, may I say, if you read these books, they're quite interesting. I mean, quite fascinating. But they are not in the canon of Scripture. Why not? Well, for very good reasons. And I've actually written down some of the reasons why they're not included. And that after we've seen these, we'll go back to our list of the canon of Scripture and we'll see that it, it fails. Here are some of the reasons. First of all, there were loads of lists written of the books in the Old Testament. The Apocrypha is never mentioned among them. Never. So all the people who wrote at the time of the Old Testament never included the Apocrypha. Josephus here, who was a Jew but very pro-Roman, not born again, Josephus doesn't list them at all. He lists all the other Old Testament books. He doesn't list those. In the first four centuries of the church, never are the books of the Apocrypha listed as part of the inspired word of God. Never. So they were not accepted. You see? Look at this. The Apocrypha never claims to be inspired. There isn't one mention that this is the word of God in the Apocrypha. No prophets were ever associated with them. Of course not. They were long dead. You see? Long gone. No prophets associated with them. And here's an interesting thing. Jesus quotes the Old Testament 64 times. He never quotes the Apocrypha. The New Testament writers, Peter, Paul, John, quote the Old Testament 280 times. They never quote the Apocrypha. Do you know in the New Testament, the Old Testament is quoted about a thousand times, the Apocrypha not once anywhere. Uh, more than that, the Apocrypha contains errors, very definite, provable errors, both of history, of geography, of chronology, and of theology. And I've actually put here the statement that I believe. If you accept the Apocrypha as inspired, you have to reject the Old Testament. They are contradictory. There are things taught in the Apocrypha that would never be taught in the Old Testament, things that would be frowned upon in the Old Testament. I've actually written a list of some of the things that the Apocrypha teaches. Now, <laughs> this is going to come as a shock for some of you. Let's have a look. Here are errors in the Apocrypha. Things that the Apocrypha teaches that is nowhere found in the Old Testament. Look what it says. The first thing is, it says that you can pray for the dead. And once a person is dead, keep praying for them, because you might help them. Right? They've got another chance. Keep praying, praying, praying. Lord, please, you know, please, Lord, please, please. Elizabeth I, Lord, please. That is totally rejected in the Old and New Testaments, but it's taught as something you ought to do in the Apocrypha. Uh, many references, but 2 Maccabees 12, 41 to 46, if you've got an Apocrypha, right? Uh, the next one, B, suicide is justified. That's what the Apocrypha says. Listen, suicide is never justified for the believer. Suicide is wrong 
for the believer. It breaks God's law, right? At worst, it is self-murder. At best, it is breaking the law that thou shalt not steal. Because God is the owner of life, and if you take your own life, you're stealing from God. No Christian must ever countenance suicide. It's wrong, you see? So there it is. Suicide is justified in the Apocrypha. 2 Maccabees 14, 41 to 46. Okay? See, you can apparently receive salvation by giving money. You see why this came in, why it was convenient. Can you? Because it's a way of becoming rich. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I stood here and said, now listen, unless you give me at least £3,000 a year, every one of you, you're not going to be saved. Wouldn't that be wonderful, you see? <laughs> Praise God. Don't worry, it would only last a year, then I'd retire in the Bahamas. Um, atonement and salvation by almsgiving. Is that found anywhere in the Old or New Testament? Nowhere at all. Another one. Cruelty to slaves is all right. Wonderful. Great. So you can have slaves and be as cruel as you want to them. That totally contradicts the laws given in Deuteronomy, where it says you must treat your slaves very well. They bear the very image of God. Totally contradictory to the Old Testament. Next. God is not the creator. He's simply a life force. Right? He's a force of creation. You see? He was active in evolution. We've still got this view around today. But he didn't actually create. That's what the Apocrypha says. Totally contradicts Genesis. Next, the pre-existence of souls. Do you know some people believe that you all existed before you had a body? And that your soul, some people who believe in reincarnation believe this, that there are souls all shut away somewhere just waiting for bodies to be created that they can go into. Now, the Bible knows nothing of that. You didn't exist before God created your soul and actually put it in the body at conception, right? Then you live forever and forever. Your soul is eternal after that. Pre-existence of souls. Oh, and there are others. There are others. Here are some of the others. I'll move it up. And these are all very good things, and you can do them if you want. Hate the Samaritans. Great. Jesus didn't obviously believe in this. He helped the Samaritan. You can hate the Samaritans, and that's fine. God will think that's wonderful. Lying is fine, if it suits you. Right? Lying is super. If it gets you out of a tight corner, lie your head off. I'm quoting from the Apocrypha, right? This isn't right. Magical incantations are fine, right? You can walk around with your juju stick and, you know, you can have a wonderful magical in incantation. That's absolutely fine. Assassination is all right, you know? Well, if, he, if he's not nice or she's not nice, just bump him off. That's all right. <laughs> Next one, seven angels can intercede for you. So pray to the angels, and they'll intercede for you. And the last of all, purgatory is a good thing. Purgatory is taught in the Apocrypha, you see. And uh, you may not have made it in this life, but don't worry. You'll suffer a bit, and finally you'll be acceptable. Right? And these are the teachings. Now, do you see, they're totally contradictory to the teaching in the Old and New Testament. And I'm sorry, I have to give you this fact of history. It's not popular to give facts like this about. But if you've read down that list, and you've found that it rings a bell somewhere, you're right. And this is the statement I now have to make, and you've guessed it. The Roman Catholic Church accepted that the Apocrypha was part of the canon of Scripture in 1545 to 1563 AD. Now that is a long time after the early church. But they accepted that it was 
canonical. And that's why you'll find many Roman Catholics believe many of the things that are listed here, because they take the Apocrypha as the inspired Word of God. Up to 1545 AD, no one considered that it was inspired. But again, the Church decided that it was. Do you see what I'm saying, why this is so important? Now, I would say the Church had no authority to say they were inspired. No one ever accepted them as inspired. That's giving the Church authority that it shouldn't have. So, there is the, the statement. All right, now let's go back to our rules of canonicity, shall we? Here's our rules of canonicity. Can you see that the Apocrypha breaks all of those rules? One, no prophet associated with it. Two, it's not consistent with the known doctrine. There are errors, there are contradictions. Three, it doesn't claim to have the authority of God doesn't claim that it's inspired by God. Four, it certainly isn't powerful. You read it. It's so different from the Old Testament. And five, it was never accepted. It breaks all the rules of canonicity. So the Apocrypha is not in the Bible. And that's why the Jerusalem Bible is wrong when it's got the Apocrypha actually included within the covers. All right? I'm sorry, this is a fact of history I'm giving you. It's not a criticism, right? It's the facts of history. All right, let's uh, go over to the New Testament now, and uh, let me just show you how the New Testament was slightly different, but not very different from all of this. All right? The rules of canonicity for the New Testament. Remember, there are 27 books in the New Testament. First of all, was an apostle associated with it? Well, with most of them, yes. But there are some books that are in the New, New Testament canon that don't have an apostle associated with them. Mark wasn't an apostle. Luke wasn't. And we don't know who wrote Hebrews. And that's why you've got five rules here and not just one, do you see? So apostolic authority was a, a very important thing. Next, consistency. Does the teaching agree with the teaching that we know? That was important. Authority. Does it claim to be the Word of God? As you read it, does the power of God come out? Does it have the hallmark of God on it? Next, and number four, when it was written, was it received immediately by the church? And you'll find all these books in the New Testament were. Instantaneously, people knew this was the Word of God. Do you remember we saw that quotation last week, where Paul actually says to the Thessalonians, you received our Word, not as the Word of man, but as it truly is the Word of God. Do you remember that quote? It was received immediately. And next, was it accepted as inspired, as canonical, in the first three or four centuries? And the answer is, yes, indeed it was. You see? All right, now uh, we've seen some of the problem books in the Old Testament, Esther and Ecclesiastes. Were there any problem books in the New Testament? Yes, there were. Now the Gospels were totally accepted. Acts, totally accepted. Romans and all the Pauline epistles, totally accepted. 1 John, totally accepted. 1 Peter, well, there was one little doubt about that, but that was accepted. Revelation, there was a little doubt about that. That was certainly accepted. I mean, the majority knew that was the Word of God. Hebrews, accepted, and so on. But they had problems over the book of James. I don't blame them, <laughs> right? Because when they read it, it seemed to contradict the teaching in Romans. Do you see? Isn't that lovely? And they said, well, everyone accepts it. You know, many people accept it as inspired, but to us it seems to contradict. And they had to 
read it and had to debate it and so on, as my new book, Possessing the Land, shows, there's no contradiction between Romans and the book of James. James is right for the Christians. One of my favorite books, by the way. They also had problems with two Peter. Why were the Greeks so awful? I mean, as I explained last night, terrible Greek. Well, the message was all right, you see. And then they had problems over two and three John. Two John is the smallest book in the Bible, simply because they were so small, you see, and they didn't contain much doctrine. But then when they read it, they found that the doctrine they did contain was important, do you see? And so it came through. Well, that's it. But most was totally accepted anyway. All right, so finally, you find that by the year 367 AD, you have the 27 books of the New Testament listed. And who was the first chapter to list them all? Why, my dear old friend, Athanasius. Who else? It was an Athanasius who was the chap who used the term the canon of Scripture. He was a lovely chap, right? Also, Augustine listed them, Jerome and, and others. Not K, K, you know, not him. Uh, Jerome, the church father. All right? So we come down. There were uh, certain church councils held. I'll just uh, name some of these. This is for your information. Certain church councils were held, and it's in these that everyone agreed that these were the books that everyone knew were inspired already. You see? The Council of Laodicea, 336 AD. The Council of Damascus, 382 AD. The Council of Carthage, 397 AD. And the Council of Hippo, 419 AD. And these councils did not sit in judgment and decide that this was in and this was out. They let the books speak themselves. It was the books that had the authority, not the church councils. That's the point we've got to make, you see. All right, just very quickly, I should then tell you, there is a thing called the New Testament Apocrypha as well. And this fails in exactly the way the Old Testament Apocrypha uh, fails, except this is uh, more obvious. Some of these stories are quite incredible. If you really want your hair to stand on end, you just read this. One of the statements made in the New Testament Apocrypha is that hyenas change their sex every year. <laughs> that they're male one year and they're female the next year. Do you remember when I talked about the Bible, I said there are no his uh, scientific inaccuracies in the Bible. That's true. There are plenty in this. You have a read. The Gospel of Peter. The Gospel of the Hebrews, right? The Acts of John. The miracles of Jesus and things like this. You know, you, well, if you really want a, a, a good little afternoon sometime, you just have a, a poke through this. You'll soon put it aside. You know this is not inspired, right, straight away. However, there we are. That's for completeness sake. All right, now with all of this said, can I draw some conclusions from this? By talking about the canon of Scripture, we mean this, that the Bible is the only authority for our lives. And by the way, the quicker our society realizes that God hasn't changed his standards, the quicker our society will come back into blessing and into godliness again. And we have to stand saying, look, God hasn't changed. Today, you know, society is looking around for someone with authority. Well, it's the Word of God that has the authority around here. And we've got to say, look, God says. God says. Let's just go, shall we, in our Bibles, back to the verse that we saw earlier on in this course in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3 
and verse 16 and verse 17. Now this is the conclusion you come to if you believe that the canon of Scripture is the only authority for your life and for your conduct. Look what it says. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. What for? For four things. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that is mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now notice, the word of God is profitable, the scriptures are profitable, for four things. One, for doctrine. The Bible tells you what you ought to believe. Unless what we believe is in the Bible, it's rubbish. Listen, I meet people all the time, and they believe this, and they believe that, and you say, how do you believe it? Well, that's what I believe. Well, that may be what you believe, but that may not be right. Well, I believe that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven automatically. Oh, do you? How do you know? Well, I just believe that. Oh, well, that's very nice, but the Bible contradicts you. The Bible is there to tell us what we ought to believe. And by the way, the Bible's got something to say about every issue of our present-day society. Every issue. It's got words to say about politics, about economics, right? About uh, technology, about conservation, about nuclear weapons. It's got words to say on all of these subjects. So if you want to know, go to the Bible and ask the Lord to show you. But beware lest you take one verse and forget all the others. Look, anyone can prove anything from the Bible if they take one verse and forget the others. Right? Vegetarians can go, you know, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and they can say, well, definitely Adam was told not to eat meat. And then they forget Genesis 9, where it says that now Noah could eat meat. You mustn't do that. And we, as believers, must make sure we take in the whole counsel of God. By the way, that's why we do these Bible studies and why sometimes we have 30 or 40 scriptures. Because I don't want to let a verse go past, lest you find it and are confused by it, you see. By the way, we can be like the blind man, you know, who was taken up to an elephant and felt the trunk. And the man said, oh, uh, that's what an elephant feels like. Oh, I see. Oh, it's a bit like a snake. And another blind man was taken to the back of the elephant and made to feel one of its legs. Oh, I see. This is what an elephant feels like. I see. Like a tree. And then they go away and say, oh, well, this elephant's like a, a snake. You know, it looks just like a snake. No, it doesn't. It looks like a tree. What have they done? They've only felt one part of it. Do you see? I suppose if they felt the, the ear, they'd say it's like a, a ray in the sea or something like that. You can't do that. What you've got to do is take the blind man and show him the trunk and the ears and the head and the body and the legs. And in Scripture, it's the same. It's no good saying, well, this my Bible says here. And then you quote. You're from Ecclesiastes. Right? Here it is. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Right? And here it definitely says, you know, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. And whatever they take from that, you see. And there it is. And this is it. Listen, we've got to take the whole counsel of the Word of God and we've got to know the Scriptures. And that's what we've got to try and do and get the whole overall picture. But we still get this today. Isn't it funny? We've still got people today who actually already have decided what the doctrine is. They've already made up their minds what the doctrine is. And then they come along to try and prove it from the Bible. And then they ignore the verses that are against them. You see, quite recently a man wrote a book which said this, never pray more than once for anything. 
right? You shouldn't. If you have to pray more than once for anything, you're in unbelief. No, what you should do is pray and believe that he's heard, and if he's heard, you never have to pray again. I'll tell you that, that's the end of prayer meetings, right? (laughs) What do you mean pray for Britain? I prayed for Britain five years ago, (laughs) right? I prayed, I prayed in faith. I don't have to pray again, you see? Now, what's he done? And, and he tries to prove it. Of course, most of the book is taken up trying to explain away the passages, you know, like the unrighteous judge and things, where the woman knocked and knocked and knocked and knocked and knocked, and finally the judge got up and gave her all that she wanted. And God said, good. Right? And she ignores the passages that say, you know, pray without ceasing. Or pray like a hacking cough, as it is in the Greek, as you know. <coughs> <coughs> Keep on praying, keep on praying, and a bubble of prayer here, and a bubble of prayer there, and a bubble of prayer. Listen, what's the truth? I'll tell you the truth. With prayer, you have to keep praying until the results. Unless God gives you a gift of faith whereby you know it's done. And sometimes I've prayed like that. I've prayed and I've said, Lord, stop them in Jesus' name. Or Lord, get them through in Jesus' name. And suddenly I know it's done. I've won in the heavenlies. That's it. I don't have to pray again. But that doesn't happen over everything. Beware these people who take one little thing and make a vast doctrine about it. You know? Huge doctrine over these things. We've got to beware over this type of thing. Again, the Bible is what is profitable for doctrine. Right? So don't make up your minds about that. I've heard certain people say the tribulation is not a time of God's wrath. (laughs) No, it's not. That's why the church can go through the tribulation, because the church can't be under God's wrath, but the tribulation isn't a time of of God's wrath. And they find one little verse that apparently suggests that perhaps it might not be, and they ignore all the others. You see? Incredible. You mustn't do it, and we mustn't do it. So it's profitable for doctrine. Oh, can I give you an example of that, one that's just floated into my mind? Um, Can we go to Matthew? Matthew chapter 4. Let me show you how the devil does this. Matthew 4, verse 6. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 6. And once you've found that, could you actually find as well Psalm 91, 11 and 12? Psalm 91, verse 11 and verse 12. Now, here's the devil speaking to Jesus. And the devil quotes Psalm 91. Now he takes Jesus up to the pinnacle and says, go on, Jesus, throw yourself off. Go on, throw yourself off. And why? He said unto him, verse 6, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. I found the reamer. Right? This is the reamer. The spoken word. Now, this is the word of God into your situation. Throw yourself off. Right. Ta-da! Oh, yes? Praise God we got the Logos as well. The Logos holds us back a bit. Right? Now, here, you might have a few teachers today who would say, Jesus, haven't you got faith? Where's your faith? Right? Come on, this definitely says here, look after you. Throw yourself off, and the angels will catch you. Don't you believe in angels? That's what they would have said. I believe in angels. I believe angels are here to help us. I believe if you throw yourself off, they'll be there to catch you. Oh, yeah, but beware just a minute. Now, let's read Psalm 91, shall we? Psalm 91, 
11 and 12. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. Now listen to me. This is very important. Satan quoted it all right, but he misquoted it. If you compare these two and read verse 11 carefully, do you know he's missed out the last part of verse 11? He says, it says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee, they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. He's missed the bit that says, He shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. And that little bit means this, As you go along your life, the angels will keep you. This is not daring to put God to the test, but as you move along in your daily life, in all your ways, the angels will be there to help you. And that's why Jesus replies to the devil. Look, verse 7. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You're asking me to do something that he doesn't promise. He didn't promise that if I took myself to the top of this building and threw myself off, that he'd catch me. That's tempting him. No. God knew that it wouldn't be in the normal daily path of my life to go up to the top of this building and throw myself off. Right? By the way, if I'm a roof engineer, that might be part of my normal life, then I can claim this promise. But not if I say, I'm a roof engineer. <laughs> doesn't mean that. In your ordinary day, it's no use. You're saying, right, God, you've promised to protect me. I've got to get to that port. I'm going at 140 miles an hour, the wrong way down the motorway. <laughs> Come on, God, you're going to protect me. I'm your servant. I'm going to get through. Right? This is it. And then you stand up in an FGBMFI meeting, and you give your testimony. Do you know, I drove for 200 miles the wrong way down motorway and I only killed six people. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? God looked after me. He didn't promise to look after them. They were unbelievers. And this is a wonderful testimony. Really terrible. Now that's what the devil is trying to do in this particular passage. All right, yes, oh dear, oh dear, I, I agree. All right, let's go back then to uh, Timothy. Back in Timothy. All right, so it's profitable for doctrine. Next, it's profitable for reproof. And listen, beloved, reproof means it tells you off. It tells you off. We don't like being told off. We've already made our minds up. Oh, dear, this seems to contradict what I do. Oh, well, I'll read another passage. <laughs> no long we go. There are Christians today, you can't tell them off. I know Christians that if I try and be honest with them, that's it. <laughs> this fellowship is turning into a submission fellowship. You know? Or they say, Roger, I feel your attitude's not right towards me. You say, or something like they've always got an excuse. And what they're saying is, look, I've made my mind up. Don't confuse me with anything. And if you dare tell them that something's wrong, you can see it on their faces. Listen, the Bible says that you should be reprovable. God should be able to tell you off. I should be able to come up and say, excuse me, the, the Word of God really does say a man shouldn't have long hair. But I'm trying to grow my fourth pigtail. <laughs> see? It really does say that. Oh dear. They don't like it, you see. Oh, we've got to be reprovable. Do you know, we live in a generation where some people are always coming to a knowledge of the truth, but they never actually get there. Have you noticed that? People are always having their lives dealt with, right? They'll never actually ever be dealt with. They're always getting their lives dealt with. Well, you've got to put up with me because my life's being dealt with, right? And they'll go to the grave 
saying that. Praise God in heaven, they won't be able to say that. Isn't it time, quite honestly, that instead of trying to explain away what's wrong, we really said, yes, you know, I am a bad-tempered so-and-so. <laughs> oh, it was true that my mother left me in my pram once when I was six months. It is true. But listen, I'm a bad-tempered so-and-so, and I would have been even if she hadn't left me in my pram for six months. <laughs> I mean, isn't it time we started facing up to this? Ah, oh, well, you see, yes, but I mean, if you'd been dropped on your head like I'd been dropped on my head, you'd have, you'd have had these problems, you see? Well, I know I go up and threaten people who were wearing hats, but you see, I was forced to wear a hat when I was a child. That's what it's about. And you've got to understand me, and until you know I'm dealt with, you've got to put up with this. Oh, really? Well, listen, I mean, I was as fallen, right? I was as fallen in my behavior as anyone else. I am as fallen as anyone else. But there were certain things that I was doing that were wrong. And do you know, I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, help me to say no. Say no? Never heard that. That's never been in any of the books I've read. Say no. No, I want to be delivered. <laughs> right? I want to go on a 10-month course that will finally leave me. Listen, it's time we actually said no to ourselves. We've got to do it. And by the way, there is one book that now tells you to say no. And it's coming out next month. I won't tell you who the author is. Praise the Lord. Which is wonderful. Oh, it's terrible. We explain it away. You know, someone we don't like. Oh, well, they're offending us. Well, of course, they've got a demon. That's what it is. It's not the fact that they're fallen and I'm fallen and all the rest. No, they've got a Well, I don't think they were ever saved. Oh, that's what, no, how can you be saved and you don't like me? I mean, that's impossible. The one thing I think that should mark a born-again Christian is that he is teachable and has a teachable spirit, you see. All right, that doesn't mean to say any person can come up and speak rubbish to you, but let the Word of God be the one that reproves you. Next, it says for the doctrine for reproof, then for correction. And the lovely thing about the Bible is this. It tells you off, but it doesn't leave you down there. It then tells you what you ought to do instead. Look, put off the old man and put on the new. Great. You're more than a conqueror, praise God. And it builds you up in your most holy faith. So it certainly is for correction. Tells you what to do instead. And last of all, it is profitable for instruction in righteousness and that we might be righteous, that we might be mature in all our ways. So let's end this morning's session, shall we? Over in Hebrews chapter 4, and we can say, now we've studied the canon, that this is a true statement. Look at this, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful. Isn't that wonderful? It's alive! is the Word of God. That's why, by the way, when we teach the Word of God, believe it or not, the unbeliever gets converted. You don't need a special gospel service. Just teach the Word of God. They get saved. That's why the Mormons are delivered. Jehovah's Witnesses are set free, praise God, because the Word's alive. It's not because of a convincing preacher at the front. The Word of God goes straight in and will do the work. Right? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. You've heard me say this before. The two-edged sword was a fantastic invention. Up to that day, the swords had only had one sharp edge, right? Or another sword that had a sharp point. But someone then got this brilliant idea of making a double-edged sword. It was a wonderful invention. And the marvelous thing is, it cut this way and this way. 
Isn't that great? You didn't have to flip it over. To, oh, sorry, I've hit you on the back of the head. I meant to chop your head off. I'm sorry. <laughs> Use the wrong side of the knife. Sorry, hold on a minute. I just turned it over. It's nothing like that. The two-edged sword was so marvelous, you could do anything like that. With some of these swords in the ancient world, if you stabbed a person, it wouldn't go into them. It wasn't designed as a stabber. But the two-edged sword would stab as well. So the word of God cuts and hits in whichever direction it's put, which is lovely. Praise God. And by the way, whenever someone stands up and reads the word of God, it may not be for you, it's cutting someone somewhere. Right? Then it says, look, it pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it is the critic. The word discerner in the King James is the word critic. It criticizes the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I love that little phrase. Now, do you see, it's the word of God that criticizes us. It's not us or the elders or the church leaders who say what the church, what the church feels about this. And of course, if the word contradicts, well, the church is right. Still on the radio, we have so-called Christians standing up and defending the faith, apparently. And what do they say? Oh, homosexuality is fine. Oh, well, the Bible was written at a time when they had funny views. And I know the Bible said that, but it was written in the day. It's not for today. Do you see? And so the views apparently have changed. We reject it totally. There is only one authority, and there's one canon, and it's the canon of the Bible. 66 books. Here they are. 39 old, 27 new. They are the inspired word of God, and this is the book that will criticize us. All right. Tonight, we're talking about contradictions in the Bible. And I hope I've covered your favorite. These are actual contradictions in the text not apparent theological contradictions. I should emphasize that. All right? Let's just pray together, shall we? Thank you, dear Lord. Praise you. Father, I just want to thank you that your word is the authority. I thank you so much, Lord, that that means that I can be criticized by your word. And it means that every church leader can be criticized by your word. Father, I would ask that we may be those people of principle and conviction. And if we see anti-biblical and unbiblical things being done, that we will have the courage to stand up and say that these things contradict the Word of God. Father, I thank you in Deuteronomy 13. It says that if a man who calls himself a prophet comes into the midst and he causes you to fall away from the living God, have nothing to do with him. Father, I ask again, that your word may be lifted up even above your name, as Psalm 138, verse 2 says, that in this day it's the word of God that may go forth and not man's opinions or man's works. Father, we ask that your word will divide between the joints and the marrow, that which is mere movement and that which is life. And it will discern, Father, between the spirit and the soul. Father, around us today we have so much soulish activity done in the name of Christ, yet the soul achieves nothing. Help us cut through it that we might see what the Spirit is saying and that we might allow the Spirit to move. Just bless us, Lord, and bless everyone this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen.